Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What's up, Z-Pack? Happy 2020, happy new year, and going into a new decade. This podcast is something I think you guys might enjoy. I certainly enjoyed it. In fact, I did it really purely for me and my team. So I flew to Las Vegas, me and Tom and Logan hung out in a hotel room at the Red Rock Casino, and spent an hour talking about what the last decade meant to our movement and what we're doing because I started this Z-Dog MD character in 2010, 10 years ago, and it has changed so much. It's not only changed my life, but it has created this kind of trajectory that we think is gonna do a lot of good, both previously and moving forward, but it also really woke me up to the possibilities of what can happen when you actually listen to what your intuition and your own story is telling you and stop listening to all the noise around you and all the fear and all the doubt because that's gonna be there, but being able to overcome that and pursue what you know you're called to do, if we all did that, I think we'd see a much, much, much better world and particularly a way better healthcare system. So in this 50 odd minutes of conversation, which the video is going to be going out to supporters who subscribe to the show first, and then I'll release it publicly. There was an eight-minute clip that's available uh, as well on YouTube and Facebook that's one particular segment of this that I thought was particularly relevant or powerful. In the 50 minutes or so, we really go through kind of a lot of stuff. And I think anybody looking for a direction, looking for some inspiration as to how they might approach this next decade better than the last, might get something out of this. So I certainly felt a lot better getting some of the stuff off my chest, a lot of which I haven't talked about publicly before. So without further ado, you'll hear, you know, the audio isn't perfect. Uh, it's Tom and me in a hotel room and we, really didn't do any editing. It was just the batteries would run out on the video and we'd have to clip in a new battery. So you'll hear some cuts from that. But overall, it was just kind of a seamless discussion between Tom and I. All right, guys, uh, thanks again for all your support of the show. If you wanna financially support us, because that really makes what we do possible, um, become a supporter on YouTube or Facebook. The links are in the description of this video. Uh, or go to zdogmd.com and you can find ways to support the show. Or simply subscribe, leave a review on your favorite podcast platform, uh, or subscribe on YouTube or Facebook. All right, guys, I love you, and here we go. When did you upload your first video to YouTube? The first video I put on YouTube was my graduation speech 
from UCSF. So my buddy, this guy Ellie, he's a surgeon now. We were med school buddies. He recorded the whole thing on like one of those VHS handy cams in 1999. And I was voted like the class at UCSF, got, got to vote for two speakers. And one of them was this very earnest young lady who was like, we're gonna overthrow the system and single payer and all this stuff. And the other one was me <laughs> because they just wanted to like give a stiff middle finger to the whole experience because they, they knew I'd do that. So I he recorded it and I had it on a VHS and I played it back and I was like, oh man, this thing, this was the highlight of my life. I got laughs out of my colleagues. Like it felt like I was finally accepted, right? Like my whole life and career in medical school, I'm trying to, you know, because the first day of medical school, I'll never forget. It was like being back in high school. Like nobody accepts you. Immediately there's clicks. You're trying to find them. Okay, am I with the, and you're like, am I with the nerds? In medical school, everybody's some variant of nerd, but like there's the jock nerds and there's the stoner nerds. And there's the, so you gotta find your things so you're not accepted. So finally I was like, oh, I got laughter from my peers and my mentors who are sitting behind me in this, in this, this talk that I did. And so I was like, YouTube was a new thing. I figured out like how to upload it on my PC and I put it on YouTube and immediately it got like 30,000 views. And I was like, what? Like 30,000 views of this like speech that I did. And that was when I started thinking, oh, what if I did this consciously and <laughs> actually started creating content? I don't think there are doctors doing this. Why do you think uh, that one got 30,000 views? I, well, you could say, well, it was the early days of YouTube. There wasn't a lot of medical content. I think because... No, that's too self-effacing. What do you think it... What was the core that struck? What people tell me, and I have trouble seeing this in myself, is that I saw something as it was, and I presented it as it was using humor, but it was all true. So none of the jokes I made in that speech were actually based on untruth. They were all true and nobody apparently in medicine had the courage especially in those days to actually say that publicly it's interesting that nobody had the courage to say the truth no because first of all i think a lot of people are in denial of the truth because the truth is very hurtful like when you figure it out you go ah i don't want to know that so you pull up the defenses and i think the second thing is people are conditioned like you're really conditioned by fear oh my gosh i'm gonna hurt someone if i do the wrong thing in medicine or I'm gonna offend a patient or my mentors and I'm gonna not have a job or I'm not gonna get patients or people aren't gonna trust me because remember, most doctors, anyone worth their salt has imposter syndrome. They think they don't even belong there because they know what they don't know and they're like, this is really hard and they're always afraid that someone's gonna get on to them. So if you go up in front of all your classmates and your mentors and Nobel Prize winner Michael Bishop sitting behind me and Dean Hailey DeBoss and all these luminaries and you go, this is what I think of medical school. You are making yourself vulnerable in a way that is unthinkable. Now, of course, because I was also desperate for acceptance, I knew deep down this is the only way my own peers will accept me is if I go up there, because I don't have something special in terms of intellect. I'm not gonna like blow them away with my knowledge of the force, you know? I'm not some Jedi medical person. I'm like an average doc, but what I do have is the ability to stand up and say things in a funny way that's true. It's interesting because uh, the truth does hurt, right? But like lies compounded hurt so much worse. Well, so lies compounded hurting worse is, is a truth that you only realize as you get older and 
those lies come to roost in your life and you go, oh man, I've been lying to myself. I've been lying to everyone else. Other people have been lying to me. We're all lying to ourselves too. We're really good at self-deception. And then why am I unhappy? Why is the consistent acquisition of material goods not and success? Yeah. I, everything, click it off, click it off. Unhappy, unhappy, unhappy. Maybe if I just get this, unhappy still. You know, and so you do have to start to cut through the deception and that's hard. It's an ongoing process. Do you think the culture of medicine is built on lies? Is the culture of medicine built on lies? I think the culture of medicine thrives on putting up a front and a kind of a deception, the same way an actor puts up a front. But in acting, it's clear the person is acting. In medicine, it's not. So in the room, you're a certain persona. Online, you're a certain persona. With your colleagues, you're a certain persona. Heaven forbid you're yourself. That's just the one persona that's probably not acceptable, right? So yeah, I think it is based on a kind of a fabricated um, icon that you present to the world, for sure. Kind of what I'm thinking, and it's hard to be concise about this, so I'll just ramble a little bit, is like when you show up and you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, right, on day one and you think you're gonna save the world and uh, that things are one way, and then you find out that the opposite way and you're forced to swallow the black pill, basically, that like, this is not gonna go how you think it's gonna go. And no, really, you're not here to help. You're here to bill. It kind of like, you have to then accept the lie and live the lie at that point, because you're in too deep. And that, you know, this idea that how we're paid is all antithetical to our idealism is one piece of it. But then even go even deeper, your day on the wards, uh, you know, third year medical school, I remember these cases were like, we, we had, you know, the team had misdiagnosed an endometrial cancer as something benign. And it told this woman and her partner that everything was okay. And then the pathology re-report came back and we had to go and tell this woman, no, actually, everything's not okay. The endometrial biopsy shows you have cancer. And seeing how we had to present that and handle that. And it was this big production and all this prep going into the room. And in reality, what was required was a human being to go in there and go, I'm so sorry, we made this mistake for these reasons. We will never make this mistake again because we've learned from this, but this is what's going on and I'm so sorry. That's, that's what needed to happen, right? Do you feel, did you feel 10 years ago as a doctor when you were like in the thick of it, did you feel like you were walking around passively through sort of a labyrinth that was created by malevolent actors? <laughs> it, it, feels like, uh, it feels like that sometimes, but at the same time, it's intermixed instantly with this joy of, oh my gosh, I got to be with this guy today when he, you know, he had his amputation. And you got to be with him post-op and tell him everything went okay, and you got to be with the family. So you have that magical, shamanic thing, and then you have absolute garbage where you go, you know what, we can't even dot our I's and cross our T's and keep our act together. None of these records connect. This guy was seen here, but now we're duplicating all the tests because all the system failure. And then you see people failures where it's like egos clashing and bad conditioning. You know, these are, these. I like to believe these are all really good people in a very bad system. And, you know, like Marty McCary and I were talking and, you know, he's written books about how bad the money games are in medicine. And, and he said, every time I sit down with these people, though, I'll go with the CEO of a company that's been suing their own patients. And 
These are real, you, you know it, you feel it. These are good people. They just, sometimes they don't even know what's going on. They can't see the full system that's evolved. But the thing is, we're still responsible for that. It reminds me of Murray Rothbard wrote a book called Bureaucracy. And basically like in it, he says that you can't change bureaucracy, that bureaucracy will change you. Ah. Once you go into it, it's gonna grind you down and make you part of the machine. Bureaucracy will change you is the bumper sticker that they should give you before you start medical school. Yeah. And look at it every day and go, is that happening to me? Is that happening to me? And, and believe me, every day you'll find one little thing that has happened to you that bureaucracy is, has changed you. It's absolutely true. And I, I think this is where, so if you look at the effect we've had over 10 years, the reason doctors and nurses and healthcare people and patients who care about this stuff actually watch us is they go, oh, that's funny because it's true. I felt that. You know what? No one's ever said that that's, that's got any credentials behind their name. Like people, people whisper about it and they say this, but they won't go out publicly and say, you know what? This thing's built on a house of cards that's going to crumble unless we, who have built it, actually do something about it. People like that about you. Like it, when you did the moral injury video, right? They liked it because you were saying, we're not burned out. Like there's not something wrong with us. Like you people hurt us. Yeah. That moral injury video is interesting because that, that was a, I had no idea that video was gonna get that kind of response. And in fact, you and I were talking when we were making it and I'm like, well, here's a thought. Let's do this thing about moral injury. I've talked about it briefly before and I feel strongly about it. No one's gonna care about it, but let me just get this off my chest. And you were like, yeah, whatever. And we were both like, whatever. And we did it. I just did that rant and I started getting angry during the rant. Put it out and it went crazy. And for doctors, that was like a rallying cry, like, you know what? It isn't just us. We're not crazy. The system is crazy. But the problem is they, it feels like they're blaming us. It feels like the system is saying, it's your fault. You're not resilient. You're not tough enough. You don't meditate enough. You're not woke enough. So you can't adapt to this because everyone else is adapting, right? Wrong. Because in medicine, we don't communalize our pain. We, 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 we isolate into silos. So you don't know that the guy in the office next to you who's working in the big corporate medicine world that you're in is considering contemplating suicide. You have no idea. You think that this is a super accomplished surgeon who does this and this and this. You have no idea because we don't share our pain. Moral injury video probably was one of the seminal moments where we go, guess what? My pain is like this. Is yours like this? And everybody stands up and goes, that's it. That's what it is. And it doesn't even have to be 100% correct. And a lot of people gave me crap for it. And they're like, you know what? You're you're letting individuals off the hook. There is some responsibility for resilience and all that. And I'm like, well, just read the comments. See how people have been treated. See how they feel. And then invalidate that. Tell me you can invalidate that. You can't. This is a groundswell, right? The question then is, what do you do with that? Right? What do you do with that righteous anger and that awakening where you're like, man, we're getting fucked. One of the revolutionaries uh, during the Scottish Revolution, can't remember his name, but he said, you know, I care not who makes the laws of the land, but I care who writes its songs. And what he's really saying there is like, I care about the culture because we're always gonna be trampled underfoot, but I care about how we're interacting with power, you know? Mm. And what I'm saying to you is like, do you think you've changed the culture since you started speaking out 10 years ago? Because that's, that's the goal, right? If you wanna unveil an imposter syndrome in me, ask me if anything has changed because of what I've done. Tell me the answer. And I'll tell you, uh, if it has, 
I'm going to deny that it was because of me. I'm going to say it was the inevitable progress of people waking up. But honestly, take yourself out of it. If I take myself out of it, I would say, well, people are using terminology even like health 3.0, whatever that is, right? This ethos of rehumanizing medicine. People are talking about moral injury, which wasn't invented by me. It was Wendy Dean and Simon Talbot who took it from a book about Vietnam. And so this idea that everything builds on these sort of series of cause and effects of every player in a network effect. So yes, I'm a node in this network and a, and a pretty decent sized node. I mean, a couple million people. And, and, and I get recognized everywhere I go now. It's crazy, it's unsettling. And yet at the same time, when it happens and someone says, hey, the reason I follow you is your moral injury piece or what you said about nurse violence or what you did, I go, oh, you get this feeling of elevation, like, duh, like my little part of the network had some effect. And so that's how I think about it. Did we have an effect? It's this additive effect of all these things starting to per, you know, perturbate. And, and that's why I tell people, oh, what can I do? I'm powerless, I'm a CNA, or I'm a nurse, or I'm a primary care physician at Kaiser, and I feel sometimes like I'm a part of a big system that doesn't move. Move your ass. Stop complaining and just do one thing and watch what happens because the network starts to vibrate. The next thing you know, you have a dramatic shift in perception, which then changes action, which changes everything. So that's a long answer to the question of did we have a, an effect? Now that I think about it, actually, yeah, fuck yeah, we had a big effect and we continue to have effect. And the next 10 years is gonna be even more insane because we're getting more self-aware as to how to make this effect even more pronounced, right? Yeah. It's almost like we're stuck on a, on like a, a cruise liner that's like barreling towards disaster, right? And we're all just locked in the cargo hold and we have to, every day we have to hear sort of propaganda type announcements, you know, from a loudspeaker. And what you're doing is changing the way that people interact with the announcements coming over the loudspeaker. You know, so you could say like, okay, you haven't stopped the shift from barreling ahead to certain disaster, but it's like, it can't be stopped, right? Yeah. What we need to change is ourselves. Yeah, that, and, and that's the thing. So I think the criticism of the moral injury uh, piece was, but you're letting people off the hook for changing themselves. And the answer is no. The answer is that's not what we're doing. The answer is people are starting to become aware of what it is that's hurting them. Yeah. So you're, you're listening to this voice that's telling you, it's me, it's me, it's all me, it's my, I'm a failure, I'm an imposter, I can't do it. And then suddenly there's another voice that's telling you that he's suffering too, that's saying, hey, guess what? Actually, it's not just you, it's all this. If we all realize that, I bet we could change all this. Then it is our responsibility, right? And even then, I talk about things like meditation and transcending this illusion of self and these other things that cause human suffering. That's also necessary. That's also part of it. If everybody suddenly got awakened to this, the whole system would transform, right? But you can't expect that. It has to be, you have to hit it at all angles, I think. It's change is slow because it has to happen at an individual level, right? One person at a time. One person at a time. There was a point you and I were having a discussion. How do we transform medicine and the answer we came up with was it has to happen one person at a time. Every message we get on Facebook, everything, we, we have to respond and say, hey, take, have hope. This it's little things you can do. And it involves you also reframing your power in the world. You're much more powerful than you think because you affect everybody around you. Think about the way that uh, you started the decade versus how you're ending the decade. Yeah, you put up some videos on YouTube in the beginning, but they were, they were clownish because you were so scared to take the step off the plank. So it's interesting, it's good to, to go back to those videos. So starting out with like the first real video I did at ZDogMD was 
called Colon Wars. And it's funny because now Star Wars, that saga is wrapped up, right? And uh, for better or for worse, I haven't seen the new one yet. And I started with this idea that, oh, isn't it funny that a colonoscopy is just like flying down the trench in Star Wars? And I made a bunch of jokes and it turned out it went viral among GI docs, right? But it's pure comedy. Like, I mean, it, it's not even that funny. It's just clownish, me in a room with a camera, didn't know what I was doing. I got a Mac, so I was able to edit for the first time, get it on YouTube, and I put it out and I felt, I remember even with that video, I was like, oh shit, like, I can do so much damage in the world. Like, there's so much stuff in my head that I wanna get out. And the early stuff was terrible, but it's funny, there's still people who come up to me, usually doctors, who are like, dude, you've fallen off, man. It's those early videos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they're off the rocker in my mind, but at the same time, I'm kind of like, that's right, man. That was me in the heart of medicine when I was full-time practicing. That came from that place, right? Well, you were making yourself into a joke, I think, because you were scared of anybody actually taking you seriously. Because if somebody took you seriously, then it was real. And then you had really stepped out and you were alone, right? You know, the only, t the first time I had to be taken seriously was for TED Med in 2013. And they told me specifically, like, this is not a joke. You can use humor, but there has to be a gift, a message you're giving the audience. And it has to be serious. And I wasn't having any of that because part of my, I think my conditioning is you use humor to keep people at a bit of a distance to break down sort of the fear of um, people not accepting you. So if you make a joke and they laugh, you've been accepted. If you say something serious and they don't agree or they're not feeling it or you haven't given it the gravity that it needs, you've been rejected. And so I think that's a deep conditioning. So yes, I think my early videos were a lot of clownery to try to push off, even if they had a serious topic. Like we did some stupid video called Pull and Pray about STDs, right? Horrible. But the idea was, A, use a condom Coitus interruptus is a bad way to keep safe from things like STD and pregnancy. So let's make this stupid song about it that's clownery and me putting on a Kangol and you know, yo, yo, yo. And uh, so burying the lead, right, in all this comedic nonsense, I guess was a way to get me to feel, it, it was only after I met you guys actually that I started going, because you would tell me, no, you actually have to, there's a message here that you're burying, so stop being an asshole and just, give the message, right? Yeah, because you know, the first time I met you was like in 2015, like midway through the decade. And I watched your videos beforehand and I was like, oh, these are like cute and funny and like, I get what he's doing. Like, they're actually pretty good. Like he might not even need me to come in and help out, but we had a meeting and then we talked for the first time. And I was like, you know what? There's just something about Zubin. Like I liked you immediately. You were super inspiring in what you were doing. And I could tell that you were divorced from the character that was ZDog MD, like that there was a, real significant person behind this shtick. And so the, when we had our first meetings, all I like wanted to do was be like, say the shit you're saying to me now to everybody. You know, and maybe it's because I have a millennial authenticity or something, but I was like, just say it. Fuck these old men who want everybody to shut the fuck up and let them continue to print money, you know? It's, uh, it's really kind of true, actually, I hate to say it, because I have trouble seeing myself clearly, but you actually always did have that kind of figured out that like, just say the shit that we talk about, right? Which is why I started working with you because I'm like, hey, this guy actually gets it, man. <laughs> and the quality of the work suddenly went And with the, you know, I think with 
the elevation and the quality of the videos and the audios with Devin as the audio engineer, suddenly you couldn't hide behind bad production. So you couldn't say, oh, you know what? <laughs> it's just me with a handy cam, like doing some shit. It looks terrible. And it's me with GarageBand and it sounds awful and I'm not a singer and yeah. Oh no, now I have an audio producer who's a world-class audio engineer. I have world-class cinematographers and you guys. And you know, he made me take vocal lessons so I could at least approximate in a studio the sound of some of the parodies we were trying to do. Now you can't hide behind bad production anymore, which means you can't hide behind dumb comedy. It has to be, even the character Z Dog MD was a joke. It was like a throwaway. Okay, what's the Twitter handle that wasn't taken? What did they used to call me in, in the 90s when I was in college? They called me Z Dog because I used to like Snoop Dogg because that was just a dumb, hey Z Dog, I'll just use that. 10 years later, I'm still stuck with that fucking name. <laughs> but that was what it was. It was this kind of thing, right? Character. Let, let me tell you something though. It goes deeper than all that because 10 years ago, you're a doctor who's making a high six-figure salary. Uh, you're Stanford trained. Like you have respect. You have money coming in. And you decide to take this crazy brave step and step out on your own, right? And in doing that, so you pull everybody along in their way. There's no reason why I should be in this hotel room speaking to you right now you manifested that into reality. And I was inspired and I got pulled along and became a Z packer also. So like as somebody who is a fan of you, I can tell you like it is meaningful what you've been doing the last 10 years in a deep way. Mm. And like, it's not just me, Million, millions of people feel the same way about mm. you, you know? It, you know, in those rare periods where uh, I can um, accept that uh, connection, I sit here and go, wow, like what amazing uh, uh, amounts of gratitude I have, right? Like, how did we all connect? Like, how do you guys like drop everything and come work with me? Like, how do I get a team? Like, how do I get Devin to do these songs? Like, he, he's way too good for what I do, right? And yet here he does it. And I, I, think, it's, I think it is because we all kind of align and we actually manifest each other. We go, you know what? We can actually do some good in the world. Even if we, if we joke about, nah, he's fucking, this is never gonna work. We wouldn't do it, I think, if we didn't truly believe. And I think people wouldn't follow. They really wouldn't. They wouldn't stop me in airports to take selfies. I'm not a famous person, dude. Like, I'm not famous in the way that like, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio walks around and he's famous. I, the way that I get recognized is really fucking weird. Like, it's, it's a nurse or it's a medical student, or it's a doctor, or it's a respiratory there, and they come up and they go, you're Z-Dog. They don't even, it's not even a question, are you Z-Dog? You're Z-Dog, here's what I think about what you're doing, here's why you inspire me, can we have a selfie? It's, it's a formula. And, and it's, I never get tired of it. You know, my wife gets tired of it, because we'll be in a, in, a, in a, at dinner and someone will just come up like they've known me forever. And, and that to me says, okay, we're doing something right. It means they know me as an authentic person. They trust me enough to come up and, and they care enough about the message. Something's resonating. So something we're doing right that we can't stop. And we've tried, we've experimented with all kinds of shit. Oh, well, we get more views if we do this. And then if we do, you, you've seen, sometimes I just get really sad when we get a lot of views doing something that I don't believe is right. helping the world. Yeah, but you know, the views and stuff is, that's surface. You know, I think, I think what people are here for is it's so, like, especially in your field, it's so fucking rare that somebody would step out like that, you know? Like, what were the conditions? We talk about changing the individual. Like, 
what were the and don't tell the same road story you tell all the time what were the conditions at the origin that truly like made you take the first step so i'm, I'm it's 2009 and uh i'm you know like nearly a decade into what was in my mind at that point my life this is what i am i'm a hospital doctor at stanford working for a big multi-specialty group i teach i do this identity identity this is what this is my thing I was so um, bored in my time off because I was on shifts basically when I wasn't charting an epic that I was so bored that I was picking up stupid hobbies like audio gear, like high-end stereo gear and just becoming neurotic about it. All this energy going into this stupid useless hobby that brought me no joy, it just brought me anxiety. And then at work, I was watching everything fall apart, like more and more computer, less and less teaching, less and less mentorship and shamanism and more of just click, 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 click algorithm. Uh, but I think I had deceived myself enough that that was how it is. Like, oh, I do this for another 15, 20 years, then I retire, then I'll be happy. Uh, or, you know, that's just what you do. This is just life. You work and the harder you work, the happier you are, right? But none of that was really falling into place. And I had my kids and that changed everything a little bit. But uh, I found myself like reading books about string theory in my spare time because I was like, what's the meaning of everything? <laughs> like I, everything seems empty. Like I'm doing all this, but I don't even understand what, what all this is. So when that starts happening, you start to wonder like, what's going on in general? And then I made the mistake, and this was the thing. So I don't often tell the story publicly. So Tony Shea, the guy who runs Zappos, had just written a book called Delivering Happiness about his experience with building a culture at Zappos. And he had gone to school to Harvard with my wife. So they knew each other and I knew him and so on. And we were in Las Vegas one Thanksgiving, Las Vegas of all places. We lived in the Bay Area. And he invited us over for Thanksgiving dinner or something like that. So we went with our one-year-old daughter, Nina, at the time, or two years old, and, and said, and, and, and he, was, he was radiating this kind of joy about all the things that were going to happen. Like, I've made a billion dollars. I have this amazing company. We're going to transform Las Vegas. We're gonna do all this. This is my calling, this is my path, this is what I do. And I remember he looked at me, he's like, so how's everything at Stanford? It must be cool, your parents must really be proud of you and this and that, and you must be really happy. And I remember that was the first time someone asked me, oh, you must be really happy. And I'm like, I had to sit there and go. And I remember it just came out, I was like, no, I'm not happy at all. <laughs> I've never really even been asked that. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm not happy at all. This is, feels so wrong. Like this profession that I thought was my calling has fallen into this chaos and I myself am not the person that they, that they think that I'm supposed to be. So what, and I remember I, I just told, like, what do I do? <laughs> you know, I'm looking at this guy, he's like a billionaire. I don't know him that well. I'm just like sitting at the table, what do I do? And he's like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, if I'm being honest, I'm really good at teaching and making people laugh. And I don't know, I would probably put videos on YouTube or do something stupid like that. 
And he said, then why don't you just do that? And, and I remember going, okay, that's just dumb. You don't make money doing that. I have all these expectations. I can't be a doctor and do that. I went, we flew back to the Bay Area for the next three months. I went into a depression. Like it was, because so, it had been held off by uh, years of self-deception. Like, oh, you know, if I just get a bigger, nicer car, we get the house, I have kids, I'll be happy. Uh, maybe if I become partner, I'll be happy. Okay, now I'm making a lot of money. I'm happy now, right? No. Okay, I'll get better speakers and then I'll have beautiful music in my life. No. Fuck, three months of just suicidal depression. Like, my wife was so worried about me because I would, I would just come to bed at like, like two in the morning, just like dragging and just detached and miserable. And, and I think she suspected it was because of the visit with Tony where I was like, I'm not happy at all. And it all just unraveled. And that, I remember the night it was like right before my birthday, 2010, beginning of the decade. I was like, fuck it. Went online, I created a Twitter account. What names are available? ZDogMD, no one has that. I went through a bunch of different, placebo, this, that, nothing. ZDogMD was available. I now have the Twitter account. I now have the Facebook account. I now have the YouTube account. Okay, let me upload a video. You know, graduation speech, colon video. Graduation speech had been up under a different name. I re-uploaded it. And the next thing I know, I, I was like, you knew it right away. I was like, even if there's like, it got 200 views or something. Like this is the end of this phase of my life. Like, I don't know what's gonna happen. And I was deluded. To be honest, that was delusional thinking. How, how can that be? Some idiot Stanford doctor like puts a dumbass video on YouTube and says to himself, clearly, I'll never forget what I told myself. I was like, this is the beginning of something transformative. And I don't know where it ends, but I know this is it. I, I know it. I know it. And, uh, and it turned out to be true. And, and ever since then, it's been nonstop, like doing generally what I feel called to do. And when I don't, I feel it. I feel it. I start to really get depressed or burned out. And then I have to adjust course. But being in, having the awareness now to go, oh, this is not me. I'm not doing this anymore. I've had phone calls, dude, with people that want something from me. And I've told them to fuck themselves on a phone call because it felt like I'm being pulled back into this world. Now, maybe that's, that's an overreaction, but that's where I've gotten now. And it took me a decade after unplugging from that matrix to be able to do that. And people are like, oh, you're, you know, you're lucky you were able to do it because you have this talent and that talent. I don't have shit. All I had was the ability to stand up and say, you know what, I'm not afraid. I'm sorry, I'm terrified. I'm not gonna let the terror stop me from doing what I know I feel intuitively is right. And so that's all it is. That's what I tell people too. Just, just you know the right answer. Why are you asking me for advice? You know what the answer is. You're just afraid of it. And even now, if you ask me, oh, what are the next 10 years right? I'm probably terrified of what the answer is, right? Because maybe it's something crazy, right? But that's, that's how it has to be. The power of the mind is not a joke, right? Like mm. it's not delusional that you set your intention and you hit your target, mm. you know? And the reason you were able to do it, like why you were inspired to do it is because you were, you were with somebody 
who inspired you, who had done it, who had manifested into reality, Tony. And you inspire the same thing in others. That's why it's inspiring to watch you. So, because I get the same feeling, the story you told about Tony, I get the same feeling hanging out with you. That's I'm nuts. like, this is a guy that shouldn't be here. He shouldn't be doing this. And yet he is. And he made this happen just by having the audacity to try. It, it, it's, re it's really funny though. And we can't, we can't lessen the influence that people have in the world. So Tony had no business being as successful as he was. He was the introverted kid who was really awkward. I mean, my wife knew him at Harvard and you know, he, nobody predicted that he was gonna do what he did. And when he did it, he brought so many people along with him and inspired so many people. And I was one of them and continue to be inspired by him actually. And, and, and the, the truth is, if we can do that, if every single person who walks into a hospital has the ability to inspire at least one other person in that hospital, whether it's a patient that day, whether it's something, and it's just by being present and being them and, and showing that intention does matter. Intention matters. That's, that's, that's why one of my missions in this next decade is to fight tooth and nail this idea that people get vilified online when they make a mistake or when they say something and they're misunderstood, their intentions are misunderstood. Look at the intention behind the action and respect that intention. And if the action's wrong, give the feedback, but don't assume somebody is, is a bad person. Think about, man, just think about how powerful that ripple effect really is. And it's almost like uh, you being in the position that you're in as like the lone person of the last 10, you, like you really are like the maverick of the last 10 years in healthcare, okay? I'm just gonna tell you that you can own it because I just said it to you. <laughs> it's almost like you're gonna fucking set fire to the kindling that, that is underneath the entire uh, you know substrate because where do more ripple effects where could they ever possibly happen than in the nation's hospitals clinics you know urgent care is like where could where could it ever that's where the fucking ripple comes from people go in there and have a positive experience it could change society I, I, I'm a I I think that. It's these individual things. And this is the other thing. So the other thing I, I do, I'm here I am in a hotel in Vegas. I travel all the time. You know, before 2010, I never traveled. I never got on a plane. It was a huge deal. Like print the ticket out, worry about, oh my gosh, I gotta get there three hours. Now I'm going all around the country speaking and performing and connecting with people. And the crazy thing is I see it on the ground level. It's like you go to like Stormont Vale in Kansas and you listen, People fill a theater to come and see you. And they all have stories of like, oh, this is what I do in the hospital. Every day I do this thing. And people are affected by it. And, they're, and they, they have enough awareness to see that. And then you magnify that. You re redirect and go, look, what, look at the influence that you have. You think you're powerless, you're stressed, you're depressed. And all, that, it's okay to have those feelings and to be that way. But look at also what you're doing and then the more you set your intention, I'm gonna come into the hospital today and I'm gonna influence at least one other person for the better, that's actually going to happen. Well, I'll, I'll do my best to anonymize this story, but like think about you know all the times you've had your preconceptions rocked in so far as, I remember one time we were going out to a rural area and I won't say where because it'll dox who the person is, but your preconception was that this doctor that we were going to meet was sort of a piece of shit and that they were probably doing unnecessary procedures and billing and then we got to go inside their clinic 
and we got to hang out with them for a few days. And I think you had a total change of heart where you were like, oh shit, this guy is like a pillar of this. He's like propping up this community. He's a foreign medical grad who came, you know, here to rural America to like actually do it. So I think it's more often that you find positive things when you- you know, I, I got to say this. I have I have a lot of preconceptions and biases, as does everyone. And when I find them destroyed, like not just disillusioned, it's absolutely destroyed. It's it's an awakening experience. You go, wow! Everybody is trying their best. Some are trying a little harder than others, but but everyone's doing the best they can. And then you want to encourage it when people are doing good. That's why I say things like incentives matter. A fee for service incentive system means you do more stuff to people. Uh, You know, this disintermediating patients from the cost of care is tough because then costs escalate, especially when doctors are getting paid. If one of the hardest things to get people to do is to look at their own incentives and how they're affecting what they're doing. These are good people with bad incentives. What happens? The behaviors are then bad. it's really hard because these are my people. I was incentivized the same way and I did the same bad things. It's much easier to bring someone in the hospital unnecessarily if you're getting paid to do it. It's so much work to discharge someone from the emergency department and risk, what if I get sued? What if I miss something? I bring them in and then what happens? They end up getting a hospital acquired pneumonia, end up having complications and they end up dying. So you've made a fatal decision based on your financial incentives. And then you, you have to live with yourself. It's sort of a story that's uh, familiar across you know, human history, which is like the young, naive uh, farm boy gets conscripted and then finds himself in a war, in the machinery of war, doing horrible, horrible things, things. That, they, that go against their moral code. There are many times when I think that's why moral injury resonates so much is it does feel like that. It feels like that kind of environment. Now, I've had military people reach out and say, you don't understand what moral injury is. And I agree, I agree. It's impossible to fathom that. At the same time, I think it's on a spectrum and I think this spectrum is, is similar. But, but see, this is, this is the thing. This is where, okay, now we have a, a burgeoning explosion of amazing doctors on YouTube. There's really funny people, like Medlife Crisis, this British guy. He's genuinely funny, smart, educational, and is rewarded with lots of subscribers and lots of engagement. And this is amazing. This is what we want to see happen is people expressing themselves. What I think we do that's quite unique is we have people themselves wake up. So part of our message is you watching have much more power than you know. Like once we recognize the problems, you can actually change it through intention, through these little things. Now, if it's just taking the EHR and spinning it around so that the patient can see what you're typing, you've now broken down a bit of the barrier that this garbage technology created, right? Did anyone intend the garbage technology to be garbage technology? No, they were the product of incentives. Yeah. So it's just, it's just think, like that. I think it's interesting because it's like uh, the cynical people that are out there, you know, and I'm myself always <laughs> oh, me too. cynical and skeptical. And um, they're gonna look at you and they're gonna be like, you know, fuck this guy. This guy is, uh, he's rich and you know, he's sitting in some fancy hotel room. You know, he, everybody loves him. Uh, and he's telling me like the lowly clerk to, you know, I'm supposed to speak up. No, I'm just gonna like, 
live for the weekend and, you know, just keep clocking in and then die. Like, that's what I'm going to do. Right. I, I, there's a huge undercurrent of that. And I used to take it very personally because I know who I am. Right. That, that's the other thing is like, well, you people, know, the fucking power, you know, the power of like, if you believed in it, then you could bring it into reality. You know, like everyone can, there's not, it's not scarce. The, 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 these are excuses. And when I call them that people get very angry. I go, stop complaining or continue to complain. I did. It's not like I stopped complaining, dude. I bitch and moan constantly. I just get stand up and go and do something, even if it's a little thing. But the thing is, these guys, I think it's another layer to protect them from the underlying fear of who and what they are. What, who and what they are is vastly greater than what they think. And they're terrified of that because with it comes the responsibility to live a little bit unstably for a while. Like when I started doing this thing, man, when, when I finally left Stanford, that was, dude, like I've, I'm sure I've shaved a few years off my life just from stress. Like I have little lacunae in my brain from hypertension, probably from just being like, I am, I'm, what am I doing? <laughs> oh man, it's scary to be out there. Terrifying. Yeah. And then, you know, like after the TED Med thing, then there was all this expectation. Oh, he's going to build a clinic that's going to transform healthcare. And it's like, dude, nobody can live up to that, all right? All you can do is set an example and try to set some kind of intention that this thing is gonna perturbate this system in a way that more things happen. And now look what's happening. You have people up in Vancouver, Washington that are doing very similar models and have made it better. And, and they're going to uh, conferences like AMG and they're telling people about it. I'm like, this is it, this is what we want. We want this to ripple out if it transforms even a part of primary care. So, but everybody can do that. Even, even the smallest role in the hospital, even just showing up that day and doing your thing. And this is the other thing I don't let people off the hook for. Do your job like you fucking care about it. Like I, you don't have to be the best whatever, right? But you have to come with all your, all your energy everything bring brought to it like you care about it and people who do that even if they're not good at what they do man i love them people who you can tell they're phoning it in or they don't care you know right away you're like you're in the wrong thing and now you're making my life hard right and you're making the patient's life hard and whether you're an administrator or a doctor it doesn't matter the effect is is the same it's negative okay we're we're gonna do a blood oath right here except we're not gonna swap blood because it's gross but 10 years from now, no matter what we're doing, even if we're not working together, uh, we're gonna come back and finish this part of the video. So give me your predictions for the next 10 years. Oh man, well, my prediction is I'm gonna still be bald. Number next. Um, for healthcare, give me your predictions for healthcare. Predictions for healthcare, okay. What do you we're, think is gonna change? I mean, what do you see on the horizon? Like, I think we're in a, in a situation now where the current system is not ever gonna stay stable. We're going to get instability in that system, which is either going to emerge a better system, better payment models, better incentives, better care patterns, or it's going to codify a shift to something worse that we're seeing now, which is algorithms and cookbooks. What I think, if I had my way, what would happen is we would figure out that most of medicine, the most effective parts of a lot of modern medicine, is the shamanic connection between the healthcare giver and the patient. It's a relationship between two people 
And it's not just that, it's empowered by a network relationship for all the other people that contribute to that. It's a human dynamic. So let's make sure that we respect and honor that, that explains the mind-body connection, that explains the placebo effect, and then really optimize the science where it can be optimized. So figure out that most of the stuff we do doesn't work. We're just paid to do it. There's inertia. The medicine culture is, is a gar it's a fucking garbage culture, Tom. It's a garbage, it's indefensible in the 21st century. It is garbage. Look, can we get to, can we get to the beautiful dream uh, if, if, if the relationship's taking place in this central bureaucracy? You know, I have to go into this soulless hospital to talk to the doctor, right? And he just treats me like I took a number at the counter and I'm here for a fucking sandwich at the deli. It, it, no, it can a thousand percent, it can change. Yeah, because we within saw within that, within that, within that, no, you have well. Can okay, you decentralize? You it? can, you can destabilize that pattern. You can say, you know what, uh, the incentives have changed. You're now paid that both caregivers and patients have a certain type of experience and certain types of outcomes. It's hard to measure those, right? But it's a doable thing. It's a, it's a, it's an asymptote we can strive to reach. We may never get there. But the thing is, I've saw it in our clinic. I saw it. I've seen it in other clinics where it is really about this relationship. It's not a transaction anymore. And it, you know, you and I joke like, oh, is this, am I just bullshitting? No, dude, I saw it work. The days that I saw it work where it really gives you this sense that, oh, if we can do it here in Las Vegas, in some of the shittiest healthcare in the country here, like this place, the Wild West, it can happen in the hearts of our big institutions. It just has, and when I go and talk, these leaders are inspired. I, that's one thing I'll give myself. I'll sit at the table with them and they're wiping tears after the talk and they're saying, this has been so hard leading this organization. People don't realize I'm the bad guy, then I have to save everybody, I have to pay for everything, I'm a doctor too. So there's that, but thank you for making me feel like this can be done, right? And it will be done. So if that's all we do, Tom, in 10 years, is start to inspire that change and it happens even 30%, that's a huge accomplishment in such a massive system that causes so much human suffering. Let me tell you something. I've now been doing this for five years. From That's nuts. Half age, a decade. From age 25 to 30. So I have now seeded the change of healthcare with part of my youth. And if you fuck this up, <laughs> if you fuck this up, C-Dog MD, I'd be so pissed. No pressure, Tom Heinemar. <laughs> no pressure. You know what though, honestly? That is enough, re that's a good enough reason as any that all of us have seeded a lot of our lives. And think about, when you think about, when you hear about a patient who just got fucking screwed, right? Because the system, you know, like your dad or anybody who's just been yeah. through this ringer or your mom, right? Or my parents, they've had terrible healthcare too occasionally. And you're just like, this is not just about like, um, oh, I'm a doctor and I need to have a better life. It's about really fixing it let me t dude legitimately like i was telling my wife the other day like i was like i know too much about healthcare. like i shouldn't know this much and you know honestly now it's like shaking my faith and confidence in the system and i'm i want to be put back into the matrix, in the matrix where i thought that doctors were you know really smart great people who were going to help me and not that they were handcuffed by all this bullshit you know and i was yeah. gonna be, i was gonna be treated like an automaton you know what's weird when I become a patient or when my family becomes patients, I let go of everything I know and 
I place a shamanic trust in the person who's there, whether it's the nurse or the doctor. It's happened a few times now, and I'm always shocked because I know better, right? I'm like, ah, but the truth is I also know better. I know that they actually do want me to get better. They do care. They actually do. And that, yes, they got all kinds of systems problems, and you can make jokes about it in real time, right, to try to diffuse some of the stress. But the truth is they're there, they're with you, and we have to give them that part of us as patients. Otherwise, we can't expect them to give what they give. That's, I think, part of the problem is we do need to hold ourselves as patients accountable. It's hard because you know a lot now and it's easy to get cynical. I know enough now that I've actually pushed beyond cynicism and I've <laughs> transcended into like actual hope. I'm like, oh, these are, we're all humans, man. We're doing the best we can. <laughs> I think we actually have something here that could work. So 10 years, I think we might see it manifest. If I had, um, if I had my way, I would talk about nothing but meditation, self-actualization, <laughs> and transcending our, uh, our material world, uh, worldview. But I know that that's not actually going to move the needle as much as what we do. So we're gonna, it's going to infuse what we do a little bit. In a way that Deepak Chopra has become famous and annoying for in the bad side. Like he's trying... It's interesting because, you know, I, I, I've really got to think about that. Just say it. Just blurt it out. Because if I'm being honest, like, you know, like the, the interview I did with Donald Hoffman, for, if we're talking about the next 10 years, yeah. you know, a two-hour interview, go read the comments on that interview. It's got 200 and some odd thousand views on YouTube. And it was me in a flow state with an individual that I thought is onto something about understanding who we are. And I thought it would power, it would actually power a healthcare transformation if we actually saw the world that way. So for two hours, I interviewed the guy thinking no one would watch it. Not only did a bunch of people watch it, but the comments are insane, dude. And so when you look at someone like Deepak Chopra, who's been talking this kind of woo-woo nonsense for how many decades, right? But then you, you have to go, well, he's actually not entirely wrong. The heart of what he's saying is not wrong. He's just framing it in pseudoscientific gibberish. Maybe our role in the next 10 years is to science the fuck out of that and actually bring it to the world in a way that actually, okay, now that is the next emergent paradigm is something that transcends this reductionist approach that, that, is, that is, I think, fucked medicine up. Uh, and we've seeded that to people that are in the alternative medicine world that speak ill of science and slander what actually works. Why? When scientists hate them too. And it scientists goes, goes both ways, right? It goes both ways. Yeah. They're all dogmatic. But the truth is, the scientists are right. These guys are spewing pseudoscientific gibberish. But mm. the alternative medicine guys are right because there's something that science is not able in its current incarnation to quantify, and that is this. Yeah. Uh, and that's what that, you know, acupuncture, what is that? Is that magical chi? No. It's somebody there looking you in the eye, touching you. Sham acupuncture works like regular acupuncture. It's, it's, that's what we need to be understanding. And there's precious little research in it. So maybe we can inspire people to do that. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. 
it, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st- really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.